praise you. What a great idea. <laughs> Sending your son to be born of the Virgin Mary, uh, to live as a human being here in this world. Wow, you're amazing. We celebrate that this time of year. We're so appreciative of you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Jesus, we love you so much. We want to learn a little more about you and a little more about your plan. And so please teach us from your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, page 570 in the Bibles that we give away. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. Uh, We're going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse, and we're going to see how Jesus changes absolutely everything. And so I asked Maria to share her testimony of how Jesus changed her life. Hey, I'm Maria. Um, So about two and a half years ago in May 2017, God scooped me up and saved me from a really destructive drug addiction. Um, I've been, I don't know, I had lots of trauma and lots of icky stuff go on in my childhood, so I used drugs to cope with that. And um, I got saved, and then like three months later, I was able to put it down forever um, because of God. And since then... My whole world has changed. I mean, I, I know what peace is today. I know what, you know, that I'm loved. I have worth and an identity that's good and not centered around drugs and alcohol and the legal system. Um, and I mean, I'm married. I'm a church lady now. I sing up here. Super weird. I mean, <laughs> but good. I know. I know. So I've, I've been completely made new um, in my identity in Christ. And I can't wait to see what else is going to happen, you know, I mean, like, oh, that was just so great, so thanks. Thank you. Great to hear. See, that's what God loves to do. He is in the business of changing everything, and when everything changes with Jesus, I want to read something from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, gives this illustration. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And so he changes everything. In our passage, the Jews at that time expected Messiah to come and take care of the Romans, but leave them pretty much the same. Jesus came to clean house and change everything. Let's look at our passage, Mark 2, verse 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and Pharisees and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, 
Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast, but the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. You see, what we're seeing here is that Jesus changes everything. He changes fasting, he changes religion, and he changes rituals. Let's look. First of all, he brings up the conversation about fasting. Uh, And in fact, the Pharisees came to him and they're asking him a question. John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, his disciples and the Pharisees and their disciples, they all fasted. And he says, why don't your disciples fast? And so he brings up this question about fasting. And fasting, what we see here with his answer is that fasting changes with Jesus. Now, the fasting that the Pharisees particularly practiced, they actually fasted every Monday and Thursday of every week. So, And they did it in such a way that they tried to draw attention to themselves. They'd put fasting powder on. I'm just kidding about that. But, but, but they would make themselves look really like disheveled and just like, I'm fasting. Look at me, how spiritual I am. Okay, And that was what they were doing. And Jesus, in another place in the Gospel of Matthew, actually uh, condemns that because that's not what God was looking for. What's really fascinating, if you study the church, the, the early church, okay, in the book of Acts, they didn't do this. But later on, shortly thereafter, we have this uh, re- recorded in the Didache. They said, we don't fast like the Pharisees on Mondays and Thursdays. We fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. They didn't get it, okay? So we're gonna, we want to make sure we get this. What's going on here? Because Jesus says, his basic answer is, the wedding guests don't fast when the groom is there. There's going to be a wedding. You don't fast during the wedding, right? Okay, that's what he's saying here. We celebrate that Jesus has come. He says, you know, Jesus is here. He has come. That's every reason to party. You see, when he brought the kingdom, the kingdom of God is a party. Let me prove it to you. Romans chapter 14, verse 17 talks about the kingdom of God. And in this particular passage, he says uh, they were getting all caught up in, in what to eat and what not to eat and this and that. And so this is Paul's response. He says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see that? It's not righteousness, peace, deep Peace that transforms, you know, just beyond what we can even imagine. And joy, joy in the Holy Spirit where you can't help but smile. That kind of joy, okay? Joy in the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that sound like a party? Okay, so this is what he's saying. The kingdom of God has come. He's brought it. John 10, 10, Jesus said, 
The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's speaking about Satan. That's what he wants. He wants to wreck your life. Okay? But then he goes on to say, but I have come that you might have joy. Okay? That you might, I mean, I have come that you might have life. Sorry about that. Let me quote it correctly. And life to the full or abundant life. Not just mediocre, average, just ordinary, let's get through life kind of life, but abundant life. Combine that with the joy and peace and righteousness. That's what Jesus came to bring, okay? That is the kingdom of God is a party. When I was growing up, we, uh, we didn't go to church all the time, but we kind of, we went to church, and sometimes more often than other times, I'm not sure why, but, you know, we would go to church, but we would go to church, and, and we just did a lot of weird stuff. We would, we would stand up, sit down, kneel. We would, we would put water on our heads. When we went to the, the, the pew, you'd have to kneel down and do this thing, and, and, and we'd go through all these motions and all this and that, and, uh, and uh, there was no change in our lives. 45 minutes seemed like two hours to me. Uh, and we left unchanged. Then I got born again. I found Jesus. I entered into a relationship with him. I experienced the kingdom of God. And now I clap. I raise my hands. I shout to the Lord. I dance before God. And these are all biblical expressions of worship, by the way, okay? And and it's because I can't help myself because I love Jesus. You know, when you, that's why I'm really enjoying preaching through the Gospel of Mark because Jesus is on every page. Have you noticed that? It's like, I love this book. Okay, so, so here we see this. That's what God wants. Now, we pre-party now in view of the coming celebration, okay? Pre-party, okay? What does that mean, okay? The kingdom of God is now, but it's here in part. So, but we're pre-partying in view of the ultimate party that comes when Jesus comes back because that is going to be the day, right? In fact, we see this back in our passage. If you notice here, Jesus' response, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as the groom is with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. So he's actually, this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark where he predicts that he's going. Uh, he, he, later on, he'll predict three times specifically that he's going to die on the cross and he's going to rise from the dead three days later. But, and, but he's predicting that, okay, he's here now. So right now, you party, right? But he's going to go. So do, when he goes, yes, you do fast during that time. But it's different because even though he goes, when he ascended up to heaven, what did he do? Poured out his Holy Spirit upon us. So we experience the Holy Spirit now, and therefore we pre-party for the party when he comes back and we have that great, awesome time, okay? Uh, let me prove it to you again. Ephesians 4, I mean Ephesians 1, verse 14. Look at Ephesians. It talks about the Holy Spirit again. And... Uh, Paul is helping us to understand how this works. He says, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Now notice here, he calls the Holy Spirit a down payment. So when he ascended to heaven, he poured out the Holy Spirit as a down payment. You know, a down payment is a real thing. It's not just a promise. 
It is a promise, but it's not just a promise. It's a real amount, okay? But it's not the full amount. So the Holy Spirit is the down payment, an amount, the pre-party, <laughs> for the inheritance to come. When Jesus comes back, that is banquet feast time. Are you ready for that? I can't, I can't wait for that. But even now, though, this is what we dare not get. We do not want to have a life that's just, woe is me. Poor, pitiful, terrible life. Can't wait till Jesus comes back. Because that's not really appealing to other people. We're supposed to be people that are contagious, okay? Where people see the joy in us from the Holy Spirit, and they go, I, I need that in my life, right? So this is his plan here. And now, so back to this whole fasting thing, okay? We celebrate that Jesus has come, but we do fast, waiting for Jesus to return. And that's the point that he's bringing up here. You know, when the groom will be taken away from them, then they will fast. So we fast, waiting his return. But let me say what fasting is not, okay? Fasting... We do not earn his favor with fasting. You don't fast in order to try to get God's favor. You see, if you are truly one of his children, if you're a born-again believer, if you have repented of your sins, placed your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone as your Savior, believing that he died to pay the penalty you were supposed to pay for your sins, if you've placed your faith in him and you've outwardly expressed that faith in baptism, you're born again, you are one of his kids, you cannot earn more favor than you already got. You already got total favor with God. He absolutely loves you with an infinite love and you, he can't love you any more than that. Infinite, you can't go above infinite, right? Okay, infinite but one, plus one. No, you get it, okay? So here we see that, so fasting is not trying to earn God's favor. Uh, and he, it's, it's, it's not, you know, like, like God's up there and he's, I really don't want to help them, you know? And you're like, well, if I fast, he's like, all right. You know, that is not what God is like, okay? And fasting is also not, um, he isn't pleased when we suffer. Some people think that. You know, it came in the Middle Ages, uh, this idea that somehow if I'm suffering, God is happy because of that. He weeps when we're hurting. He does not take pleasure in our suffering. And that is, so that is not at all what fasting is about. What fasting is, is it's intense seeking prayer where there are times when you need to seek God and you must have contact with God and you're seeking him and he says, here's one way. You, you set aside this thing that's normally good and you just put it aside because I've got to have God. Fasting is intense seeking prayer. It's heart preparation. I'm preparing my heart. I want, I must have the king. And, and so you must have his ear and so you seek him. It, with fasting, and it helps in that regard. And also, it's a reminder that this world is not our home. You see, he is, he does, he has left. He's poured out his Holy Spirit, 
but we long for his return. When he returns and he makes everything right and he changes the world, that's when it becomes our home, okay? So this world, we need those reminders. This world is not our home. So we fast, waiting for Jesus in return. But, but Jesus changes it. You see how this, this, he changes fasting and he changes religion. Now he gives these two illustrations. First, the patch of unshrunk cloth, okay? If you have, a, uh, I was gonna say a pair of pants, but they didn't have pants back then. If you have a robe, okay, let's say that. You have your robe and you, and you tore a hole in it or whatever, and you take a patch and you put it on the robe. If it's unshrunk cloth, see, they didn't have pre-shrunk clothing back then. Okay, so you take this unshrunk, and then you put it on there, and then you wash it, it shrinks, and then it tears the whole worse. That's what he's saying. So that's what it's like, because both illustrations are saying the same thing, when you try to just add Christianity to the old religion, okay? So he gives the second illustration. You don't put new wine into an old wineskin. The old wineskins, they'd become hard and crusty and less elastic, and, and new wine, when you pour new wine, and new wine, when it ferments, it expands. And so an old, crusty wineskin would burst, and then you lose everything. He says, no, you don't do that. Uh, with, you don't take the old wine, the old ways, the old covenant, and try to pour it into the new covenant. Jesus changes religion. Let me read from uh, Daniel Aiken's commentary on this. He says, the imagery now shifts to two concise parables. The connection is to Jesus and what his first coming means. Jesus came to save sinners, not the self-righteous. That's verse 17. Jesus came to bring gladness, not sadness. That's verse 19. The pertinent question isn't why Jesus' disciples didn't fast, but why the Pharisees didn't feast and celebrate the presence of the Messiah. Here, Jesus informs us that he came to make things new and not perpetuate the old. With the coming of the Messiah, Judaism must give way to Christianity, and rightly so, for in Jesus, the Hebrews' faith finds its fulfillment. He came to fulfill the whole thing. So the old covenant is obsolete. When I say the Old Covenant, I'm referring specifically to the covenant with Moses, okay? The covenant with Moses is obsolete. Look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. Here, the book of Hebrews, the whole book is all about comparing uh, the New Covenant with the Old because he's writing to Jewish Christians who were being persecuted for their Christianity and who were considering going back to their, their Judaism. And so he's writing this to let them know that would be foolish because everything has been changed since Messiah has come. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, by saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. The old covenant, the covenant with Moses, is no longer necessary. It's obsolete. It's passing away. And that's what he's saying in this particular passage as well. Um, in the Bible, we see in the New Testament that the old covenant, the covenant with Moses, is actually temporary. 
Galatians 3, 19 uh, and verses 24 through 26 actually use the little word until. They say the old covenant was necessary until Jesus came. And so Jesus changes everything. The old covenant was only meant to be temporary. Hebrews 9 verse 10 brings that out as well. In fact, the Old Testament anticipated the new covenant when in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, he speaks of a new covenant to come because they had broken the old covenant. So they needed a new covenant to replace the old covenant. And in fact, according to the New Testament, not even Jewish Christians have to obey its commands, the old covenant commands, according to 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, Galatians 2.14, Acts 10, 9-16, Mark 7.19. I wished we had time to go into all of those passages, but we would be here for a couple hours. Now, the Vikings don't start until 3, so we could technically do that, but we're not going to. Go back and read these. They're in your bulletins, too, if you didn't write them all down. Go back and read these. You will see not even the Jewish Christians. Paul and Peter both did not follow the old covenant laws um, because they saw the freedom that the new covenant brought in. Uh, now, let me make sure I, I, you understand what I'm saying, what I'm not saying, okay? They're no longer under the covenant with Moses, but the Jewish people are still under the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant with Abraham. The covenant with Abraham came before the covenant with Moses. And according to Galatians 3, 17 through 18, the covenant with Abraham is eternal. And the covenant with Moses did not replace the covenant with Abraham. In fact, the covenant with, it goes on to say the covenant with Moses was only temporary. But they still have the covenant with Abraham. It was called a berith olam. Now, that's the Hebrew, meaning a covenant forever. In fact, all the covenants in the Bible that we see, they're all called a berith olam, covenant forever, except the covenant with Moses. It only calls it a berith because it's only, it's, it was a temporary covenant, yes. So that's the only one that doesn't use that bereath olam. Therefore, since they are still under the covenant with Abraham, the land is still theirs as promised. In fact, 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 14 through 18, Jeremiah 31, 36, all promise that the land is theirs forever. It uses the word olam. It is theirs forever. And so that is theirs. In fact, they are back in their homeland, as predicted in Ezekiel 37, and they will put their trust in Jesus, as predicted in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. God isn't finished with the Jewish people yet. They are still under that old that covenant with Abraham, but the old covenant, that's not the covenant with Abraham, that's the covenant with Moses. The old covenant is old, no longer needed. It was only for the time to prepare the people for Messiah. Now, when you hear that, you think, okay, does that mean I can just sin all I want? What's the answer? Thank you. Now let me tell you why. <laughs> okay. All right. We are still under the moral law. 
the moral law that was actually given with the covenant of Adam at the very beginning, of course, that's still applicable because God doesn't change his moral standards, okay? Um, We are still under the moral law. It helps for us to understand when we're looking at the laws of Moses. Have you ever read the Old Testament? Okay, some of those laws and rules and regulations, how how does it work, okay? First of all, let me say there, it helps to understand there are four types of laws in the law of Moses, okay, the, the old covenant. There are four types of laws. There are ceremonial laws. This is the kind of laws that are like, uh, here's what you do if you find mold in your house. You call the priest, he does this and this and this and this. Or the laws of, you know, what kind of fish can I eat? Can't have, it has to have fins and scales. Those kinds of ceremonial laws, no longer under those according to the New Testament, Okay. Um, you can eat catfish if you want, okay? Sacrificial laws, all the different sacrifices they had. You see this in the book of Leviticus. Um, The Bible says that Jesus was the final, ultimate sacrifice, so no need for any more sacrifices, so we're no longer under those laws. The judicial civil laws that were meant specifically for the uh, theocracy of the Old Testament Israel, the a theocracy is where God is the ultimate king of that particular nation. Uh, now that God is working through a transnational people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, that, that's no longer applicable either. So we're no longer under those laws. But of course, we're still under the moral law. The moral law is found in both the Old and New Testaments. You might wonder, how do I know if it's a moral law? If the New Testament reiterates the Old Testament's laws, then that's clearly, we're still under that. And the New Testament does give lists. If you're wondering, okay, God didn't like murder back in the Old Testament. Can I murder now? The answer is no, no. okay, because that's a moral law. Once again, in the, even in the New Testament, it helps us understand that. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 gives a list of certain moral sins, uh, and there are many other lists like that in the Bible that you can look at. So if it's in the New Testament, of course, we're still under that moral law because God doesn't change his moral standards. In fact, perfection is still God's standard. He, he doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't say, oh, you know, y'all blew it so often, I'm going to bring it down to 70%. Could you do 70%? 60? 50? No, he doesn't do that. He still expects absolute perfection. Romans 2, 6 through 11 brings this out. But then you're thinking, wait a minute. We're not perfect. None of you are. I know most of you. And you know me, right? Okay. We're not perfect, so how does this work? Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. One of my favorite verses in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 10, verse 14. He makes this incredible statement. He says, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. By one offering, speaking of the death of Jesus Christ, okay, that one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Those who are sanctified are the ones who've been set apart for Jesus. If you're born again, if you've repented of your sins, placed your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation, outwardly expressing that in baptism. If you're a born-again believer, that's you. He has already, past tense, 
perfected you forever. It, this is good news. He has counted you perfect. The perfect righteousness that we need to be able to come into the presence of a holy God is put to our account. He imputes Christ's perfect righteousness, because Jesus was perfect, right? He imputes Christ's perfect righteousness to us, takes our sin, and places it upon Jesus, who then suffered and died on the cross for those sins. This is the amazing transaction that takes place. Now, it says those who are sanctified. Better translation in that would be those who are being sanctified or being made holy. It's a present passive participle, which you probably don't care about grammar anyway. You should care about grammar. You should also care about your grandpa, too. Okay, anyway. Sorry, but, but it's, it's those who are being sanctified, because that's us, okay? We've been declared righteous, perfect. When Christ sees us, he sees the, when God sees us, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ, so we have the perfect standard met, not by ourselves, but by Jesus Christ. But then he calls us to live up to this. We're all supposed to be holy, live the holy life, and he helps us do that. That's the process we're being sanctified okay we're in process of that but that's how it works so that his perfect standards are met and certainly we seek to obey and follow him Uh, god accepts jesus sacrifice as our substitute and counts our faith as righteousness the perfect righteousness required and we see this in romans 4 1 through 5 so jesus changes religion that sounds a lot different doesn't it than the Old Testament sacrificial system, rituals, this and that, and everything else, right? And he ultimately changes it from ritual where that is replaced with relationship. Ritual replaced with relationship. And I'm not saying that the Old Testament saints didn't have a relationship with God. They did. But it was also surrounded by a lot of ritual and rules and so forth that have been shed now. Um, In... uh, Aiken's commentary, he quotes Warren Wiersbe, who says, salvation is not a partial patching up of one's life. It is a whole new robe of righteousness. The Christian life is not a mixing of the old and the new. Rather, it is a fulfillment of the old in the new. Jesus performed the last ritual so we could experience the deep relationship that God wants to have with us. Deep relationship, back to the kingdom of God thing, it's joy in the Holy Spirit. Simple joy. That's the relationship we have with God. That is a good summation of it, simple joy. And simple joy is contagious. People, if they see you as just a woe is me, life is terrible, I can't wait till Jesus comes back. That doesn't really draw them, okay? But if they see you where you're walking with Christ, you have this personal relationship, you're filled with the Holy Spirit to where the joy bubbles up, uh, that's contagious. And by the way, especially corporate joy. When God's people gather together and we all start feeling the presence of God and we're worshiping him and you just can't help but just to, woo, you know, whatever, you know, please do that, okay? Wooing is perfectly acceptable, okay? All right, okay, there you go. 
New Testament worship is informal and lively. If you look at the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, it records the early church. The early church at its beginnings, before it got crusty, the early church in its beginnings, there was very little, if any, uh, ritual. There was, it was very informal settings. They all gathered together. We see this in Acts 2, 42 through 47. They focused on God's word being preached on the prayers and on the fellowship. That's what they focused on, okay? And without all the other stuff that was put, put on them. Um, so we see here the uh, New Testament worship is informal. Liturgy and high rituals are not found in the New Testament and especially in the book of Acts. Instead, New Testament worship is experiential communion with the creator of the universe. Experiential communion. Let me show you. Jesus talked about this. Look at John chapter 4, verse 24. John, or Jesus, is talking to the woman at the well, and she asks him a question because she was still stuck in this ritual stuff, and she says, now when Messiah comes, do we worship here at the mountain with all our rituals, or do we worship in Jerusalem with all those rituals? That's basically her question, and his answer is, neither. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, he's already explained what this means, and she misunderstood that too. So go back to chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water, the water in the well, will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Springing up in him. Alomai is the Greek word. It means leaping, rushing upon spirit coming upon you and in you and stuff. Doesn't that sound like a party? Okay, this is what he's referring to here, okay? He, he explains it more in chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, 37 through 39. He says, On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture is said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. <laughs> streams of living water flowing from deep within you. That's what Jesus says is normal Christianity. Verse 39, he said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So we see the pattern here, okay? Jesus comes. They're supposed to celebrate because he's there, right? Does miracles, really cool stuff. Then he dies on the cross, and he rises again from the dead on the third day. But then he ascends up to heaven, pours out his Holy Spirit, this is the time where we experience the Holy Spirit with the streams of living water flowing from deep within us. Okay, that makes you go, woo. That's it. All right, you're getting the picture here. Okay, all as a pre-party for the ultimate party when Jesus comes back, sets everything right, wipes out all evil, and then we'd really go, woo. Okay, I'm telling you what. Okay, 
So have you experienced this? This is the question, okay? Have you experienced this? Where sometimes you are just in tears of joy. Because that's normal Christianity. Normal Christianity. It's not only for certain super spiritual people every now and then they get it. It's every born-again believer. This is normal Christianity, okay? Okay, so ritual is replaced with relationship. Jesus changes everything. He changes everything. Now, last week, we saw that Jesus rejected legalism. And this week, we see that he rejects ritualism. So why did the church resort back to both legalism and ritualism in the Middle Ages and even today in much of the liturgical church? Why? And I don't have the answer. I don't know. I wrote here, perhaps they thought deeds done to appease a distant God was easier than a personal relationship with the living God who wants us to draw near to him. I don't know. But I do know this. Jesus is inviting us to the wedding feast, the party of all parties. And somehow in his economy, we actually experience the party in part now, but fully when the king returns. So let's enjoy as much of his presence as possible now, right, while we wait for his return. Always remembering this world is not our home and so we do fast, and we do serve, hastening the day, longing for that wonderful day when Jesus comes back. This is his plan. Let's pray.